Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Pat McDowell, and glad to help you on your journey towards senior leadership in the charitable world. Thanks for listening and for your feedback. Delighted to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are on the cutting edge of philanthropy and strategic planning. I had a fantastic conversation this week with Chris McLeod about her journey in nonprofit leadership, which is a fascinating one and frankly instructive for current and aspiring nonprofit leaders. Chris is the director of the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at Duke University. It's one of the oldest and largest institutes of its kind in the country. And this follows over 25 years of nonprofit fundraising and leadership positions in higher ed, healthcare, arts administration, and community foundation work. Now, there are lots of things to listen for in this episode, but let me give you three that I think you'll find interesting in particular. Number one, the concept of Leadership Gift School, which is a program that Chris co-founded over a decade ago, and how the important principles of leadership gifts, the partnership between executive directors and development directors at an organization, and the ability to articulate a vision worthy of a million-dollar major investment is still so critical to nonprofits everywhere. Chris also expands on her work helping organizations develop a legacy-giving program, and frankly, it's easier than you may think. And finally, Chris gives a really great testament to how she's balanced her career with real-life experiences, her mother's failing health, her own cancer fight, Uh, the type of topics that certainly help put everything in perspective. Well, lots more beyond those three topics. Don't forget to check out the show notes. This is episode number 54. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find out more about the resources, the links, the books Chris recommended, as well as more information on the great work she's doing at the Osher Institute. Speaking of resources, go to our website and check out two programs that could really help you on your professional path. If you're new to the nonprofit profession, there is the New Development Professionals Virtual Workshop Series this fall. Still has space available, and it's part of the Institute for Philanthropic Leadership that Chris herself uh, was a founder. Also, PMA's Mastermind Program still has spaces this fall as well. Uh, We're getting particular interest in the senior professional track. So if that is of interest, go to our website, check out the FAQ article to learn more, and certainly reach out to us if you have any questions. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Chris McLeod. Chris, thank you for joining me on the path. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm excited for this conversation, Chris. You and I go way back, and you've had a fantastic journey of nonprofit leadership, lessons learned throughout that I know our listeners will benefit from. So maybe let's start with that. How did you first come to nonprofit leadership? Well, I was living in Washington, D.C. I had gone straight through undergrad to law school and started working for a large real estate developer. Um, It was interesting work. fascinating work, but not especially meaningful. And I was just running dry. I was kind of exhausted and burned out. Um, So I took a couple months off and just trusted that I'd find something that would be meaningful. And I ended up, you know, about six months later with a job with um, Habitat for Humanity. 
in Durham as their one of their first fundraisers. Um, I actually worked for three Habitat affiliates at once, something you would only wow. do early <laughs> in your career. Um, right. So. But that kind of launched you on a path that I know we'll talk about uh, multiple stops along the way where you have been a fantastic fundraiser. Um, and in fact, the headline for our discussion perhaps is a concept that you helped originate in Charlotte called Leadership Gift School. And I wonder if, if you might uh, explain the principles that, that kind of helped conceive that. I guess it was what, 2008 maybe in that time frame? Yes. Mm -hmm. it, it was a conversation that I had been having with um, Michael Rose at um, Carolina's Healthcare Foundation. Um, and, and actually it really grew out of my first fundraising role. role. Um, you know, I was in a position where every week the executive directors would say, how much money did we raise, Chris? And they really felt no ownership or really responsibility for bringing in the money, you know, in, in some respects. And I had this just incredible pressure. I felt this pressure that, you know, how many houses we built was all, was all up to me. Um, and in some of the early solicitations, um, you know, they didn't go so well, or actually, no, they went very well, but they were short of what we needed, you know, and what the goal was. And so I felt this sense of personal failure in some wow. ways. And right. I really felt like Leadership Grift School was an attempt to build what I would have liked to have had in terms of, you know, all my colleagues went into these bank training programs, college classmates and stuff. And they were, they were kind of given a roadmap and um, a career track. And I kept feeling like, I want to learn how to do this correctly and do it well. And I want to understand, you know, some of the disconnects and address them through an educational program. And, you know, over the course of 20 years, by the time, I guess I'd been doing this 20, 22 years, by the time we started talking about it, you have some ideas about where the fault lines are. Um, a big piece of it was, you know, just learning from the experience of um, making calls on donors. Um, I think too often as fundraisers, we were afraid to admit our mistakes or admit what didn't go well. Right, um, right. The importance of a partnership between the executive director and development director. I really believe that was kind of the secret sauce of really shifting the culture in Charlotte is um, having an executive director and development director come through the program together. So they had a shared vision and a shared understanding of what it takes to build a major gifts program, particularly when it relates to investing in fundraising as a program. So true. And I know you and I both have seen it. Uh, and I'm guessing at that time, as you talked to colleagues that were major gift officers or development directors, was the refrain you kept hearing that, I can't get my executive director engaged in fundraising. Was that Absolutely. kind of the, the, the rally cry? Absolutely. No, I think that was really true. And, you know, and so I saw people, you know, fundraisers often get a bad rap for leaving jobs, but, you know, it doesn't take long to get there and realize that everything's kind of organized against your success. Um, there's often not the, just the cultural patience of waiting for a donor to be ready to give um, most, most EDs, you know, wanted $30,000 today as opposed to $3 million in three years. They just, right. Right. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, I'm not criticizing them. The business model is, 
I mean, it's just a cash hungry business model and it's very hard to be patient unless you're a large institution. Well, didn't you find a lot of the funders and, and you and Michael had, had evaluated that funders were saying, hey, a lot of nonprofits are in essence nickel and diamond us or yes. kind of doing a lot of special event fundraising. And I guess that, you know, is, is the definition of you wanted more leadership gifts, right? Well, one of the things that we both understood, Michael, that I understood from having worked in higher ed at UNC Chapel Hill was that was the that the bulk of the money that charitable dollars come from individuals. And in Charlotte, that seemed to be like a major headline. And I think when you look at big cities like Kansas City or some of the other large cities where you'd have some corporate headquarters, um, there is a lot of corporate money and, you know, and spent in terms of benefits and sponsorships. And all I kept thinking during 2008 was that money's going to dry up or shift. Yep. And individual donors are more sustainable over time. But in Charlotte, really, there weren't, because of the United Arts Fund model and United Way, most of the nonprofits had a very undeveloped, you know, infrastructure around development. So people literally just didn't know how to raise money from individuals other than events or annual fund model. That's um, so true. And you referenced the Giving USA kind of statistics tell us um, the money is with individuals and families. However, uh, I guess Charlotte was blessed with a, a fairly generous corporate community, but you saw a lot of nonprofits were overly reliant maybe on, well, if I can just get the big banks or the big energy companies or whatever to support us, they really weren't investing in their individual philanthropy, were they? Absolutely. I think I think I was stunned at how often I when I would share the Giving USA information with a with a nonprofit board, um, people were just stunned. They didn't believe it um, because right. it, it right. wasn't true in our community. Um, well, it, it's you then, and, and I know with Carla Williams and others created a program that one, I guess, emphasized the partnership between the executive director and the chief development officer. In fact, the program, they had to sign up together, maybe speak to speak to the design, because I think communities all over the country, if not the world, might consider some of these principles. And that's interesting, because that was a principle that emerged um, among the, the group, there were eight or nine of us who got together to start discussing this. And it really evolved along with Carla Williams, um, who, was, who was on the faculty at Indiana School of Philanthropy. And it really was kind of iterative. We started to imagine, you know, how can we affect change? And without the ED, we realized that the DOD could, ha could understand what to do, but unless the executive director was on board, there would never be the investment in the programs. So that really grew out of our collaboration. I have to say too, it was working with that board was one of the most extraordinary experience in terms of having colleagues who have really complementary insights. There really almost wasn't any redundancy. Some of us shared a few strengths, but I was really impressed and just inspired every meeting by the different insights of folks like Bart Landis, James Bullock, Kristen Hills Bradbury, and others. Um, Jim Kelly was a driving force and really helped, um, particularly in the transition um, when I stepped down later. But there were just really, and Philip Blumenthal, 
was one of the early funders and supporters of this effort and has continued to support it. Um, so we were very, very fortunate. Impressive. And of course, I, I know you and I both hope that there are perhaps talent like that in other communities that, but you did a fantastic job rallying that talent together. And, and there was absolute agreement. It wasn't like it was a competitive space amongst fundraisers. It was like, mm -hmm. hey, we can kind of raise the tide for everyone if we do this better, because there is enough money to go around, right? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that was so exciting to watch the cohort of nonprofits leaders over time realize that that they really needed to really be speaking in a deep, meaningful way to their supporters and not kind of chasing everyone. Um, there were some great stories of donors who showed up at crisis assistant ministry wanting to help homeless children. And Carol Hardison said, you know, really affirmed and celebrated that individual and said, you really need to be working with the child's place because that is right. really their mission. And to me, that's just such a beautiful example of recognizing that there's enough and that that donor would be able to reach his or her full potential by working with someone whose mission was serving homeless children. Yeah, love that. And that is where the collaboration benefits in so many ways to a community. You, you alluded to the board education, Chris, that I guess the program was initially founded upon. Did you, did you find that the, the board level of engagement in major gift philanthropy was also kind of a key goal to the program? It, it was a key goal. I think we realized early on that we needed to focus initially really on the executive director, development director team. Um, the board element, um, we were just challenged by, you know, the availability of time and commitment of board members. But what was exciting was just, just beginning to host those programs, even for boards that didn't attend, started recognizing that they had a more critical role to play. Um, and we were also able to celebrate and highlight um, examples of boards that were doing this especially well, like um, Children's Theater and um, Charlotte Ballet, that were really, where the board was integral to opening doors and um, being participating on donor calls in ways that were meaningful and really appropriate and allowed a lot more peer-to-peer -peer, um, invitations. Yeah, I just, I think those are such good strategic kind of headlines for any nonprofit, that partnership between the executive director and the chief development officer, the emphasis on long-term investment, leadership gifts, and of course, board engagement. It sounds like Chris, what you said, board education and engagement around mm -hmm. where philanthropy comes from. But if nonprofits would follow those principles, <laughs> they will be much more successful in their fundraising efforts. Uh, of course, you have had great experience in both leadership gifts and of course related to that, I guess, is legacy giving and plan gifts. And I wonder if you might speak to some of your experiences there and how that might apply. Because my sense is many nonprofits are still a little bit intimidated by planned or legacy giving. Well, I, you know, part of it, I think, is, you know, many of the folks that are in development roles tend to be younger. They may be late 20s up until even 40. And I think until you have even parents who have faced a terminal illness or something, you don't really appreciate how much um, older adults uh, want to talk about legacy and making a difference. Um, I think 
that's one of the things I was really fortunate to learn, even when I was younger at UNC Chapel Hill, was we had donors who loved to talk about making a difference for, you know, undergraduates in terms of scholarships or um, underwriting research. And so this notion of legacy, to me, and, and doing plan gifts, um, was honestly the most rich and meaningful work that I did um, in development. And it's something I get to do today in my role with um, the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, which primarily serves older adults. Um, it, even then, I've been stunned, you know, at my own father's concern about his legacy and how he'll make a difference. And, you know, he's a beloved retired physician and former professor at the med school. He's mentored hundreds of medical students, has many deep personal friendships, and you know, I would say children who are well launched, who don't, you know, need a lot of resources. And yet still he is worried about how he'll be remembered and the difference he'll make. And I, I find that, you know, interesting to talk to people about and donors, especially donors with means. What, yeah, what, I guess from the donor perspective, you know, there, there is a degree of uncertainty and, and kind of, again, intimidation maybe with what legacy giving is, is, and I know you've worked with a lot of organizations, nonprofits. What, what do you think is the hesitation? If, if a young professional, is it simply they, they worry they're going to get pulled into legalese that is over that, their yeah. head? I think they're worried about not having the answer. And I think, um, you know, even one of the things I think that was helpful in working with some of the arts groups that I worked with at the foundation was even as an attorney, um, I could convince them that, that what the donor really wanted to talk about was you know, the difference the gift would make. They don't wake up one day and say, I think I would like to do a CRT. <laughs> they exactly. fall in love with an idea, a vision, and then they go to their financial planner and say, how do I make it, how, how can I do this? I wanna make a gift of 3 million or 5 million, or I wanna create this program and they tell me it's gonna cost this. You know, sometimes the advisors can help them find other ways to leverage resources and, um, and preserve assets for future generations and frankly, most of these donors would never expect, you know, a major gift officer to have access to that kind of information. And frankly, it'd be, it's presumptuous of the development director to think that they need to know that, that a donor would, would rely on them or that kind of advice. Um, even as a lawyer, I've had to tell people, you know, donors like these three vehicles, you need to talk about your to your lawyer and financial advisor about what works best given your financial circumstances. So well put, and I agree. And, and my advice is exactly that as well to development officers: don't don't get entangled uh, or intimidated by the the technical aspects. These donors what? will have that right; they'll have access to those resources. Your job is to just help connect them to the mission and the vision of your organization. You know, Tom Lawson, who is um, with U.S. Trust, um, gave a fabulous presentation to AFP once and said that the title of which was, don't let the 15% the get in the way of the 85% of planned gifts. So 85% of planned gifts are bequests or retirement benefit designations. So they're really vanilla, easy to do. 15% are complicated. And he's basically saying, like, unless I, you know, I know it all, I'm not going to even have the conversation. And he really, that was a principle that I kept sharing and at, attributing to Tom Lawson. That's a great point. Uh, you're right. I'm glad Tom reinforces that point that, 
uh, again, most uh, estate planning vehicles are very straightforward. And so as uh, Jim Kelly famously says, you just need to be open for business in terms of legacy giving as a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you are going to lose out, as we all know, the kind of uh, intergenerational transfer of wealth is huge. And your nonprofit can benefit if you simply open the door to legacy and plan giving. Um, it's but that is a back door too to a major gift. I, you know, we had numerous situations at Chapel Hill where couples would come in and set up a scholarship fund and they would leave just giddy and excited about the impact of it. And then they'd get home and realize, wow, this isn't going to happen till after we're gone. And sometimes two or three weeks later, they would call back and say, well, what if we just wanted to fund it currently? Could we yes, start doing that? Yes, I love that. And yeah. pe donors tend to think more expansively when you're inviting them to dream about making a difference versus like, I need $30,000 today or next quarter. You know, when you're dreaming about making a difference, you tend to think more expansively and then you go and figure out how to get it, get it done. That's so well put. And I'm glad you say that because I think a lot of times, whether they come out and say it, sometimes I've had executive directors or board leaders say, yeah, we know we should do plan giving, but we've got to focus on near-term giving. And I would suggest that, yeah, but having those conversations with donors about long-term vision and dreams often translates to near-term investment as well, right? If they're going to put a long-term investment at your organization, they probably are going to support you now also. Well, one of the principles that, you know, the questions that Carla Williams asks on the first day of Leadership Gift School is, you know, what would you do if you had, a, if you received a gift of a million dollars? You know, how would that change your trajectory? What could you do with that? And what is your case for a million dollar gift? And most of the executive directors, and I think it's fair to say most of them, especially in the early cohorts, didn't know what they would do with it. Great point. And, and her whole point was that is the work of the next eight months. You need to have basically a wish list from a hundred thousand to a million dollars of what that could accomplish. And you need to have it in your back pocket and be able to talk about it articulately because until you have a vision and a case, you're never going to get a million dollar gift. That's because so well put. If we keep asking for small scale, investment, you're going to keep getting small scale investment. But if you can't articulate a broader vision, then why would they give you the large gift? And that's exactly, I think, what Carla was telling us, right? Yeah. And donors look at you. It's interesting, especially having been at Foundation for the Carolinas, you begin to understand the mindset of, old, of many of these donors. And there's just, there's certain level sizes of nonprofits and maturity levels that are required to get the larger gifts. But even as smaller nonprofits, if you're not thinking long-term and communicating that you're thinking long-term, especially in terms of having planned giving, you just aren't in, in the donor's mind eligible for that size of a gift. Yeah, exactly. And that is sad because you may have a vision that warrants a larger investment, but if you talk in a small scale, you're going to continue to receive in a small scale. And I'm glad that you and, and Carla and, and Michael all, presented that early on that we're, of course, trying to continue. Um, Chris, your journey has been one of, uh, I guess, fair to say some ups and downs <laughs> and nonprofit leaders, as much as we focus on the mission of our organizations also have to juggle the realities of life. I wonder if you'd speak to that. You had to juggle the realities of your life and circumstances related to healthcare that 
I'm sure impacted your career path. Well, it did. And, and frankly, um, you know, it, it still does in ways today that are really meaningful. Um, I had been, um, I was four years into um, having my own business, uh, Giving Matters Inc., which was a philanthropic consulting firm. Um, and I was running out of steam. I was really having a hard time. Um, I was feeling really lonely and isolated from my colleagues. I didn't feel like I was getting better at what I was doing because I didn't have the colleagueship that I wanted. Um, and I was really struggling and beginning to ask the question about returning to, you know, um, a more of a, an organization. And my mom got sick. And so I ended up going home to help out with her for a few months. And then just a few months, a few weeks after she passed, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, um, stage two that required surgery and ultimately chemo. So for about 20 months, I was completely unable to work. And 15, 16 of those months, I was actively being treated um, for stage two breast cancer. Um, and one of the things that's come out of that, um, interestingly enough, is this whole notion of chemo, you are almost ground down to the just dust, practically. Right. I can't explain it any right. other way. But once you've hit that just rock bottom, and, and often people in recovery will speak to this, once you've hit that, there's tremendous freedom. And, you know, I work at a university where there, it can be very political and, um, and there can be all kinds of challenges at times, but having gone through chemo, there's almost no one and nothing that intimidates me or that I worry about, um, you know, I've, I had to, I closed down my business after five years um, and it was the right decision to make. I needed to go back to a, a large organization, preferably a university because of my health need for corporate healthcare. Um, but it really helped me think about legacy and, you know, trying to figure out how I wanted to spend my time in the next, you know, 15, 20 years of my career. I knew I couldn't go back to the demands of travel of a right. fundraiser. Right. And so I was looking for a role that might value my major gift experience, but I didn't want that to be all I did. And I started looking around at other nonprofit leaders who had taken some interesting career paths and looking at what they did. Um, but, you know, gratefully, I'm healthy. Um, I've completely recovered. Um, you know, it, there, the reoccurrence of breast cancer can be, you know, really a variable, but it's something that is a good um, kind of a touch point um, for me because it keeps me really focused on what's important. And I feel like I'm doing as good or better work. It's just not the pace and the speed that I was doing it um, before, before my diagnosis. I'm so grateful you're willing to share, Chris, because you're right. The path to nonprofit leadership, of course, the title of this whole podcast is not a singular path, right? right. Uh, you have indeed been able to manifest nonprofit leadership in different ways, and we don't all have to go along the same path. In fact, maybe talk about Osher. Talk about the program you lead now. What, what is it for those that may not be familiar? So the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute is a program for older adults. Uh, we offer non-credit courses, social activities, trips, you know, a variety of kind of activities 
um, really des you know, kind of targeted to folks 50 and older. I would say the majority of our membership are between 65 and 90. Um, they are retired, um, you know, university faculty, um, business professionals, um, artists, teachers, educators. Um, and the triangle is, you know, it right now is so rich in terms of, you know, folks, um, or just say their profile. We're a, a magnet for retirees, and we tend to attract a lot of university faculty who want to live in a great college town, but maybe not the one that they taught in for 25 or 30 years. Right, right. So, so we have, um, it's primarily run on volunteer leadership. Um, I have a full-time, you know, assistant, although I'll say she operates more as a director of operations. And then I have a 30 hour week employee. Um, the bulk of the work is done by um, about, you know, we have about probably eight to 10 volunteers who practically work full time for us. And then about another 500 volunteers who are involved in a variety of aspects, you know, from the curriculum committee to social activities to um, you know, membership, that type of thing. But we're, we've been growing pretty steadily. What was most interesting to me about this program was the business model for it. Um, it really helped me appreciate the challenges so many nonprofits, you know, face. We have an endowment. We have the ability to charge membership fees and course fees, which, you know, basically make up 90%, 95% of the budget. And then we have the ability to raise money from our members. Um, and it makes, you can be a lot more creative, let's say, when you're not worried about making payroll every single month. And um, when any capital campaign is going to be, which we are planning, or we were planning, we'll see after COVID, um, <laughs> right. for, for a new building. Um, so it really helped me appreciate what all of us, you know, have been up against in terms of fundraising for just day-to-day -day operations, never mind the strategic, you know, big projects. Well, and Chris, you used a phrase, I think, in one of our earlier conversations that, that what you've really enjoyed about the role is the opportunity to, to, to shape, I guess, both the vision and the, the funding as, yes. as opposed to maybe previous experiences. Yeah, you know, most of the time when we're a development director, we're given a vision by our executive director or by our board. And there can be issues that we know donors or that we personally have difficulty with. And the, the real fun part of this role is I can shape the vision, um, you know, for the building, the type of building, um, and, you know, and be, be part of the planning for the, for the actual campaign. And it's, it's rare that you get to do both. And, um, you know, I'm not paid as a fundraiser. I took a, basically a program director role. Um, but it feels a lot like being mayor of a small town. You know, one day <laughs> right. you're getting called because no one picked up the trash. And the next minute, <laughs> someone's calling you because they have a philosophical disagreement with a professor over, you know, the way history was communicated in, in this particular class. So, um, but it's very interesting. And because of the nature of our members, um, you know, it's fascinating work, just like working with donors. I, I love it, and, and you you uh, articulate so well uh, an episode that I did uh, a few weeks ago about, I guess, setting a personal strategic vision for your career, and, and looking beyond the title, frankly, because it sounds like Chris, you really analyzed that, you know, the nature of the role was important, and some of those elements of the funding model, 
and the, the nature of your work is ultimately what's more fulfilling than just simply climbing some ladder. Well, you know, that's, it's interesting. I've been having this conversation a lot with my dad. You know, we're, we're basically, our culture celebrates money, power, and prestige yep. and success. And yet our souls crave love, meaning, and purpose. And everybody wants to make a difference. And the question is, how do they want to make a difference and how much will it cost, you know, from the donor's perspective? But for me, I knew that I wanted to, it was important to work with really bright, smart, engaging people. I really enjoyed working with older adults. Um, I needed to be learning something new every single day. And I knew I couldn't run at the speed I was do, you know, that I was running in Charlotte, um, especially post-cancer, post-chemo. Right, um, right. And so I, I really was looking for a job and a role I could do for, you know, the next 10 or 15 years. And fortunately, this is, you know, it's turned out to be the case. Um, it is not a 40-hour-a-week job, but, you know, I do think that... Um, there are phases in any calendar that make it much more sustainable than some of the roles I've been in in the past. Um, I really appreciate you sharing it. I know we have listeners right now that are pondering, you know, this, as you just put it so eloquently, you know, maybe intellectually, they're like, well, I guess I need to climb the ladder here, but perhaps that's not the ladder I need to be on and ultimately fulfilled by a slightly different path. And I'm delighted that you have, found some of that and hopefully for many years to come. Uh, I do, however, want to get, oh, sorry, go ahead. Let me just say one other thing. One of the no. things that I think I feel really grateful to have learned from working with donors is, um, you know, rich being rich isn't just about money and very few of our donors who are very wealthy necessarily feel rich. And there's so many other variables in our life. You know, right now for me, it's time, it's, it's, um, the space to, you know, explore other things that are important to me. Um, time with family, which I think a lot of people are discovering for better and worse. And Good point. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, so I think there are lots of ways to live a meaningful and satisfying life. I think the challenge is so many of the cultural prompts will lead you in the opposite direction. And um, you find once you choose a path of heart or a purpose, so many of the things you thought you couldn't live without go away. Um, and we're seeing that with COVID. So well put. I'm glad you articulate that again, because I think that maybe takes the pressure off some, uh, you know, listeners on a path that ultimately is not fulfilling. And it's great to hear you say it that way. Um, I also want to get you to speak to some lessons you've learned. You're a very talented writer and speaker and have uh, had experience writing in various formats. Uh, as a nonprofit leader, sometimes you have to take a stand perhaps on issues that are not universally popular, but I, I wonder if you might speak to what it's like to be a nonprofit leader to speak out on topics in, in your case within philanthropy. Well, you know, we were talking earlier about this editorial that I had written four years ago um, about the Charlotte Symphony. And I think that was an article that came out of some conversations I was having with colleagues who were really challenging me, who were saying, you can write, what can you write that no one else, what can you say that no one else can say? And I began to realize that a lot of the things that needed saying were not something that a, a nonprofit executive director could, you know, could say and still keep their job as, you know, a, the head of a, a particular organization. Um, 
So I wrote an article that really, you know, um, inflamed, you know, some of the more um, wealthy individuals in Charlotte. And privately, a lot of those folks, you know, reached out to me that and said, thank you for telling the truth. Um, what was say, what was the nature of your what was the nature of your message in that editorial? So the message was um, donors aren't you know aren't the, the the most successful and most wealthy donors in Charlotte aren't giving enough to save the symphony, and and actually we've lost in incredible leaders you know and I referenced Jonathan Martin who was with the Cleveland um, or so Symphony Orchestra, we lost people because they were here for four or five years and they could not close some you know game-changing major gifts and it it inadvertently pointed a finger to a few folks and um I, you know i would say i knew what i was doing and yet i had no idea how it would you know that it would <laughs> land the way it did let's just say um however you know gratefully i also had some mentors who had worked for the charlotte observer and had retired who really helped me understand that 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 kind of controversy is a rite of passage for writers. Yep. And to really appreciate that words have power and um, that I was just really learning how to use that. Um, and so again, it was a painful experience at the time, but now I look back on it and I think, wow, you know, that's pretty amazing that that was possible. I think it's still, frankly, the article raises issues that are still true and I think more recently, I've come to understand what I think I was bumping up against was this patriarchy of who gets to make the decisions in Charlotte, who decides that the symphony survives or not. And, you know, the decision making in Charlotte's still very concentrated, even if it's not with specific individuals, it's still an inner circle, whether that's known or not known. Um, and it's a lot of the behind a lot of the controversy of the so-called task forces. It's, you know, there will be people brought in to represent different parts of the community, but their ability to be heard and their words actioned are still circumscribed. And um, I think we're seeing that across the country. Um, you know, people having issues with who's at the table and who's not. That's well put. I was just going to say that the things you were shedding light on in Charlotte are, are likely issues that are, are prevalent in communities all over the country, right? In right. terms of, you know, you, there was a nice a call to action about the philanthropic potential in a community. People aren't necessarily stepping up who could. And as you said, they're not necessarily everybody at the table that needs to be there. I, I would hope in recent occurrences, maybe are, are putting a little bit more of a spotlight on making sure we have kind of a diverse representation around the table, so to speak. Well, I remember being stunned working with a, you know, one, a nonprofit that was working a lot with homeless children and they recognized that they were only reaching half the children. This was back, you know, in the 2010, 2011, but they were only working with about, you know, meeting the needs of half of the homeless children in Charlotte, about 2,700 homeless children. and. To me, the idea that there were 2,700 more homeless children in a city like Charlotte was just unconscionable that they had just, you know, I wanted them to know that they were, you know, acknowledging that they were only serving half. Half of and, them, right. And an organization that had very large reserves, let's say, you know, financial reserves. And, um, 
you know, being with homeless children, you know, there's a there's a window there to really rescue and well, not rescue, but and support them. And there can be entire generations lost when that's not happening. And there's similar, you know, opportunities in the immigrant community and other areas. But um, to me, I just that was a real concern of mine. Yeah, totally. Well, again, it seems to me it's one sometimes when we're in a a role of advocacy or communication, uh, not everyone's going to agree with us. But um, as nonprofit leaders, sometimes it still needs to be said. And so I admire the fact that you were willing to take a stand, uh, even if people didn't always agree with it. But we have hard jobs in the nonprofit sector. And sometimes we have to shed light on things that are not, you know, universally popular. Well, I had a business school when I worked for the business school at UNC Chapel Hill. I was there about six months and I ended up doing something that upset some faculty members. And this was at the beginning email and I just got tons of email. And I was really afraid I was going to get fired. And the dean came down the hall and stuck his head in my office. And he kind of <laughs> winked at me and he said, if you're not pissing people off, McLeod, you're not getting anything done. <laughs> that is a and he great said, Keep advice. It up. Yes. Keep it up. And, uh, you know, so, um, that, that works better in Durham and Chapel Hill than it does in Charlotte. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, if we're going to be change agents, sometimes we are indeed going to have to piss people off yeah. and, uh, thank you for taking a stand like you have, uh, Chris, as we wind up, I, I guess your journey is powerful and really a, a testament to a lot of things. But I wonder as, as people approach you now and say, Hey, Chris, I'm thinking about nonprofit leadership. Are there certain pieces of advice you offer in addition to everything you've already shared? Well, I think, I think the quality of leadership and mentorship is key. You know, when I hired some two, different, two young women to work for me at the Foundation for the Carolinas, I asked them to commit to work for me for two years. And I said, you know, if you leave and take a job for $5,000 more down the street, you will not get the quality of mentoring and opportunity that you will at the community foundation. And I think the challenge is when you're in your twenties, $5,000 sounds like a lot of money. Indeed. Um, yep. And most of us, as we get older, realize that quality of life and, and what your tra- career trajectory looks at like over five to 10 years um, really makes a difference in the quality of mentorship. Um, and so I think that's really important. I think the other thing I would say is we really is failure is inevitable. And I don't even like to call it failure anymore, but you're going to make mistakes. And um, I think having been raised to be an achiever, you know, mistakes were just almost unthinkable and, um, and really challenging when they happened. And I think I just, I would invite people to be a lot more compassionate um, with themselves um, early on and not, I mean, I left jobs because sometimes I felt like I had to get out before I was deemed a failure. Um, right. Right. You know, and which is a shame. Yeah. And, and I think it's very common, um, for, for people who are really all about, you know, achieving things. Um, so I think those would be my two messages. And, and then finally, I would say, you know, invest in, in, your own self-awareness, whether that's through coaching or therapy or a leadership circle. Um, but the more you know yourself and what you're good at and, and accept roles that really want what you have to offer, the more successful you will be. Great advice, Chris. Could not say that any better. And I hope our listeners will pay close attention. It is indeed often about who you work with 
and, and that you have a support structure that can enhance your professional development trajectory, as you put it, and other great advice. If I could off, uh, ask you for one parting gift for our listeners, it would be maybe a book or two. Um, I know you have read lots of good stuff. Anything in particular stand out that you might recommend to our listeners? Um, one, of, one of the things that was most surprising to me is I, I love um, Henry Nowen as a writer. And oh, yeah. I think I'd been in development about 15, 20 years when I discovered he had written a pamphlet called um, The Spirituality of Fundraising. I was just, you know, dumbstruck. Um, you can you can order <laughs> right. it on Amazon now. Yes, um, yes. And it, it's really very powerful, particularly in a in in faith communities, but particularly working with donors of faith, you know, and not just Protestant or Christian donors, but um, you know, I think understanding the role of someone's personal faith, whether they're Jewish or Muslim or you know. Protestant is really key to understanding, you know, what's meaningful to them. So that's one of my favorite books. Um, you know, I I finished reading Best of Enemies, which is a story about a French a interracial friendship in Durham um, during desegregation, and it really has been powerful in helping me understand a lot of the relationships. Um, in the Durham community between blacks and whites. And the complexity is even more, um, is more than I even imagined. And I grew up here during that time. Um, right, right. And I say that just because I, I think in these times we have been primarily been, you know, a white, predominantly white profession. And many of the women are doing the development director work and many of the men are in leadership roles. And I think you know, all that's being questioned now. Um, but I think as a profession, um, we need to be much more thoughtful about our mentoring of people of color and, um, you know, other diverse communities and bringing them into the fold and inviting them, you know, to be at the table because they have insights and perspectives that are new to us. And, um, so those would be my two favorite books. Great books, great advice uh, associated with that. Chris, this has been fantastic. Um, obviously, we'll include those and other nuggets of wisdom you have provided in our show notes, which I hope our listeners will check out. And of course, we'll link to the Osher Institute. Uh, anywhere else you, you would want to call their attention for those interested, particularly in the good work you're doing there? Um, you know, I will. I just need to say ahead of time, our website is really... Um, it's challenged. So um, <laughs> I think if you look at the catalog PDF, you'll have a richer sense that is available on the website. You'll have a richer sense of our program. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll hand you that. We will happily steer people in whatever direction you'd like, because there really is some great programming you're doing, Chris. And thank you, thank you once again for joining me on the path. It's been fun. I appreciate it, Patton. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Chris as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide your professional journey and enhance your organization strategy. Uh, don't forget the show notes are available on our website, patentmcdowell.com. You can find out more about the Osher Institute, where Chris is leading right now, as well as the Institute for Philanthropic Leadership, which she helped found and its signature programs, including the New Development Professionals Program and Leadership Gift School. 
As always, thanks for sharing this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe. Just go to the podcast page at patmcdowell.com and you'll see links to all of the primary platforms. That way you won't miss any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday as well as the bonus features we're producing at least once a month. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. Keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful for you. And I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.